Why don't we turn to Matthew chapter 11? Matthew 11 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible with you, that'd be the best thing to do. The ruffling of pages, the little pencil or a pen to mark, to live in your Bibles, I still find to be a tried and true way to become acquainted with it, so that would be good. But if you need a Bible, there's a black hardcover one in front of you, and of course, I'm sure there'll be some screens turning on. It'd be great. Just find your way to Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Matthew 25. We're going to read Matthew 11:25 in order to get at the topic of gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. We've been spending time this summer considering each of the the words that used to describe the total, the totality of the fruit of the spirit. And as a reminder, what we're saying when we say to the fruit of the spirit, it's the spirit of Jesus, and so therefore, this is a list a characteristics list, a slow down and ponder list of what Jesus is like. And we've now come to the word gentleness, and so I'm going to read the 25th verse of Matthew 11 down through 30, and then we will consider it together. It's the 11th chapter of Matthew, 25th verse. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." As is usually our our custom, uh, mainly out of our sense of terrified need to understand the Bible, we take a moment and we pray right now. Uh, But I also want to just consider and to to pray for our community as well. Uh, It seems like we've been catapulted this last week or so, or last few weeks, back into uh, concerns of safety and cases. And uh, we have a number of people within our church who are struggling, who have been sick for a number of, of weeks. And a lot of this brings confusion because it's not as simple as, well, who has... We lost... Okay, I'll stop looking down. I think when I look down is it. So it hasn't been as simple. I feel like everybody uh, got into a rhythm over the last year where we felt like we had some rules, where we thought we knew what was happening and some of those are being broken. And so I know there's a lot of concern around, and so I want to pray not only for those who are sick and for struggling, but for decisions and for unity in our communities, including our church. Um, I also would uh, ask and consider prayer. I had a little bit of uh, a setback, I would say, this week as well. I had to do some some doctoring and some testing of antibodies for me, and I had to have a third booster shot and like felt terrible, and there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of discussion going on when I thought we were just about at the point where we're over discussion. And so uh, I think we all could probably feel and understand how discouraging that can be. And so I want to take a moment not only to pray for this passage, that we would live in it, that we would know it well, but for the the greater situation, the context that we're in. So if you do that with me, please bow heads. Let's, uh, Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are 
not only fully and totally powerful and in control, not only do you know all things, but you are good. You're a perfect judge, a righteous judge. You are kind. You keep not only your glory, but our joy in mind when you move in the world. And we trust you even when we don't see. God, we ask that you would make your will known in circumstances that seem very confusing. I pray for our community as it seems to be dealing with another bout of COVID cases and confusion around what does infection look like and how does it happen and what kind of efficacy is there in vaccines. God, I know that there are many who are dealing with sickness even right now. I pray that you would heal them and care for them and protect them. God, I ask especially for those who are compromised in some way. I pray that you would give them faith and consistent trust in you over these days. I pray, God, for our community. I look in, I see in conversations happening in our local schools, governments and states, and then I feel those same pressures here within our church. And God, I ask that we could be an example of peaceable unity. Help us in these times to keep things in proper perspective, to see what is most important. I pray that we would not lose ourselves or our souls in the midst of dealing with difficulty in the world. So we need you. Maybe open our eyes, maybe let this be a moment, God, of how much we always need you. It's not like we're always in control and then sometimes you have to swoop in. Whatever has been revelatory about these days, God, open our eyes to see and to learn, learn in these moments. God, I pray now for the text of Scripture to dig deeply into us. Let it be the sword that it is, living and active. We pray that we would have grace, grace to hear, grace to apply, grace to repent, and then the grace to grow more and more like you, Jesus. We're going to need the Spirit of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come, rest, dwell here, delight to be at work in our midst. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The I am statements of Jesus are wildly popular for a number of reasons. One, quite simply, they're awesome. Two, I am statements often give us illustrative type material that just makes sense to a lot of people. And so Jesus would go throughout his ministry in the world in order to describe who he was, where he'd come from, or what his purpose in the world was. He would often take a moment, a poignant moment, festival, sometimes when a crowd is around after saying, I am. And he would say things like, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Most of us know well, at least those who have been around the Bible a good while, around the church, know the, uh, those kind of I am statements well. But here in Matthew chapter 11, we have an I am statement that comes a little bit 
contrary to the spirit of or to the norm that Jesus uses I am. You see, it's often that Jesus declares I am to point to something about his his being. In other words, his nature, where he's come from, the purpose that he plays in the world, his power, his divinity. But it's a little bit more rare when there's an I am statement from Jesus that declares not who he is, but what he's like, how he is, I would say. The question of how is Jesus, what's he like to encounter? What is his spirit? How does he move while he's being the light of the world? Those statements are less known and perhaps less studied. Here in Matthew chapter 11, we have a profound statement from Jesus himself that tells us what he is like. How is Jesus Because the question will be, when we go to him, when we're convinced that he is for us and that we need him for the forgiveness of our sins, the question that might be in someone's mind is, well, but what is he like and how will he deal with us? When I follow Jesus and I take on his spirit and become like him, well, what is that going to do to me? How will I be as a person? And that's why this statement, especially in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, is so instructive to us. Jesus himself describing how he is. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle. It's one of the few times that Jesus uses a descriptive, characteristic word to describe himself. He has no problem describing his ontological being. When he says, I am light or I am door, he's describing often tasks or source or position he has in the world. But it's a little bit more rare when he describes the kind of presence that he has, his affect to the way that he interacts with others. But here directly he tells us, this is something that we have when we have Jesus, gentleness, because Jesus is gentle. I am gentle and lowly in heart. We hear the same kind of thing about Jesus when he describes himself coming not to to serve and to give himself as a ransom For many, when he girds himself with a towel and serves the disciples, we are seeing him act out this statement, I am gentle. What was Jesus like? Gentle. I think this is probably a good time, which we've usually done each and every one of these weeks, is try to define what do we mean by gentleness and how would we say that Jesus is using this word? Let's get us all on the same page, this idea of when we say the word gentle or gentleness, let's try to think together on what that means. And the first thing that I would say is that gentleness does not equate to what perhaps is a temptation, and it's, it's in there so we understand, we get it, but it does not equate to weakness or shyness or being disengaged. Gentleness does not mean unable. A good definition, I believe, for gentleness is rather power under control. Gentleness is the acknowledgement that someone has an ability, has even a potential to dominate or to move or to influence, but deftly deploys power. Gentleness is resting the ease with which someone demonstrates an understanding of the situation, knows their own strength, knows what's necessary to get a job done, and only goes so far as is necessary. Gentleness is a big, burly father having just come from throwing concrete around, rushing into the hospital to meet his newborn daughter, and deathly 
list, dirty hands. He has great power over her in that moment, but the thing that is astounding and amazing, his gentleness comes through, which is power under control. And if he is described as gentle in that moment, it is not a mark on his character. It is not a way to describe him as weak or whipped by his daughter or something. In fact, the evidence of his depth of character is his understanding of the moment and his ability to deftly deploy his potential dominance in the situation for the good and love of the other. So gentleness does not equate to mere weakness. In fact, when you think about the way we use the word gentle, it is to describe something that has the potential to be not gentle. There's power built up whenever you describe it. If you described a gentle wind, well, you're describing that in contrast to the kind of wind that comes through in Hurricane Michael. If you describe a gentle wave, you're perhaps contrasting it with the kind of waves that they were surfing in the Olympics off Japan. If you describe a gentle rain, you're describing the kind of thing that is in contrast to a biting, whipping, crop-destroying rain full of hail. You see, knowing the full impact of that description, to know the full impact of the word gentle, is to realize that there is gentleness being displayed, softness, deftness of touch being displayed not only in the moment, but it is gentleness when it is compared to the contrast of what it could be. That is Jesus, when he is saying, I am gentle, he is not saying, I lack power and am kind of weak and easily run over. And what he's saying is, I am committed to being in your midst as one who holds power carefully for the good of others. Gentleness describes the kind of situation where a person will not insist on dominance or not insist on a pushing forward of their rights because they've read the situation and realized that the most loving way to have a presence in that situation is to hold their power lightly. It's that kind of spirit that marks Jesus and therefore will mark us. It's that kind of spirit, the kind of thing that willfully says, I know I have power right now, but I'm using it carefully. It is that kind of spirit that does not insist always on its most maximum right. It is that kind of spirit that insists not to be bull in a china shop, to not have the kind of situation even lovingly. What was the, I don't even know what show it was. There was a cartoon when I was a kid where I think there was an abominable monster, like a snowman or something. I guess he was a yeti, but he would search after some character and he loved him so much he would squish him to death. Am I making this up? Has anyone else ever seen this cartoon? It's Bugs Bunny? Yeah, okay. So Bugs has this character that loves him, right? But the danger here is that he would love him so much that he would smother him and kill him. I had a cousin that as a little girl loved cats so much that she was in danger of strangling them because she was a little girl and didn't know what to do. She would pick them up around the neck and hug them like this. It got messy a few times. It is the kind of spirit of Jesus, and because the spirit of Jesus is in us, that will make us the sort of people who understand and don't just willfully give away power, but hold back 
not always insisting on taking the maximum, the best, to be the loudest or to have the most. We consider the situation, we consider the perspective or the context of the moment that we're in, and we walked deftly amongst others. That gentleness, the Bible tells us, gentleness that was in Jesus by his own statement, I am gentle, we can take it to the bank, there's not a lot of debate over that. I don't know if Jesus was very gentle, I mean, sometimes he showed power, which again, it's not the absence of power, there's no debate over this, Jesus says, I am gentle, and because we have the spirit of Jesus then, Galatians tells us we should see gentleness forming in us. Is gentleness forming in us is the question. Now, when I look at this, I'm going to consider gentleness in our lives or in the world in a couple of different ways, and I'm going to think about it like this. First, I'm going to talk about the way Scripture describes gentleness as a pattern. So, gentleness as pattern. Second, we're going to think about the way that Scripture describes gentleness as power. Well, that's a little counterintuitive. Gentleness as power. First, pattern. Second is power. And then finally, gentleness as a path. Gentleness as a path. Pattern, power, and path. They should be simple to remember. And we're going to jump into each one of them in the hopes that, remember, in the hopes that at the end of this morning, what we're longing for, what we're saying is, Spirit of God, please move in me to make me more gentle, more aware of my impact on others, more aware of the power that I wield, and then to be able to use that deftly. So first, gentleness as pattern. It's not just in Galatians chapter 5, but elsewhere that gentleness is described as something that Christians ought to have and ought to be about. Just a reminder how this works. When you have Jesus, you have his spirit, and when you have his spirit, this will be produced in you. Now, it might be slow, it might be slow turning dial, it might take decades, but over the course of time, there is no substitute for the production of this fruit in your life. There's just no other way. God sent his spirit for one reason, that has to doggedly, consistently, persistently turn you into the image of Jesus eternally. That's just what he does. The spirit's got no other distractions, no other jobs than to indwell you and slow the course of time, make you into this image. So gentleness, described there, is going to show up in Christians in at least the following ways. And I'm going to give you a couple different categories or times when Scripture tells us gentleness should be the pattern, at least in these ways. Now, I want to give some props here. I got a lot of help in an unexpected place, a place that I normally don't get help, in a dictionary of Bible themes. I think it was a, a dictionary or a Bible dictionary. Have you seen these things? And normally I nerd out more than that, and I still did, and I read some commentaries that are very, very technical. But this time I found a very helpful list in a little dictionary of, of the Bible. Uh, it's named, I think, in a, in a fun way, it's Knave's Bible Dictionary. And uh, I always thought Knave's was a funny name for it, almost ironic, because it's N-A-V-E, who was a, he was a Navy officer who worked for 15 years to produce this thing, N-A-V-E, but K-N-A-V-E means like a scoundrel or an unscrupulous man. You know, like if you call someone a knave, it means that their character's terrible. So I just think it's so funny, Knave's Bible. I think it's like the, this is the dictionary for rotten people, I guess, or it was written by a rotten person. And I please ask your forgiveness for having to give you this speech or for 
now that you know that I find these things interesting, you might judge me and think like, that's it. That's it. We're out. This guy thinks about stupid wordplay in reference to knaves. So there you go. But it was knaves and it helped me. And it gave these four categories of times when gentleness should be a pattern in a Christian's life. Here's the first one, correcting the wayward. Now, this is interesting, gentleness when correcting. I love this category because it shows exactly what we were talking about, that gentleness is not the absence of power, it's just the proper and deft use of power. Here's a for instance, Galatians chapter 6. Let's look at that together. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This means that in a category of discipline, correction, now that's a moment of power. That's a cutting kind of thing that it should be done with gentleness. I was thinking about one of the ways to describe this way that something could be cut out. In other words, you're going to someone and you're saying to them, this needs to stop. The goal of cutting something out is to make the thing more useful, more beautiful. It does not mean that the act of correction itself loses its power but it still needs to be done, according to Scripture, with gentleness. You can identify a wrong in someone, but it doesn't mean that you go at them and just cut everywhere. I thought of an illustration. The thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this was on a first Friday. Now, first Friday was something that my hometown did. They came up with this brilliant scheme. In early January, the first Friday of every January, they would have a downtown festival. Now, this was a horrible idea because oftentimes it would be 27 degrees below zero, but sometimes people would come out to this party and restaurants and bars would open up and everyone would go out in the streets and there was little vendors. And one of the things that was at the center of the town was an ice sculpture, massive ice sculpture. And one time I went to First Friday and I think they would make, it a, they would make a, a sort of an exception if Friday came on New Year's Eve and you could climb to one of the tallest structures in all of downtown, the parking garage, and you could stand on top of it and watch the fireworks. And I remember one time when we were going up there to watch the fireworks, I was watching the man do the ice sculpture. Now, here's what was amazing about the ice sculpture man. He was, uh, he was a brute. I mean, he was muscular and he looked like he'd just come from his cabin or maybe his ice home in the north mustachioed, carrying a chainsaw. He sculpted ice with a chainsaw. The chainsaw, when he turned it on, was not like a little sissy artist chainsaw. He's not like, well, I'm an ice artist, so my chainsaw needs to go wee. No, it went like, like a chainsaw ought to. And the end of this chainsaw cut it chipped, it sliced, it diced, it made an awful, crazy mess. And he would wield this chainsaw, which had great power, big mustachioed bird, Iceman would take his power and he would deftly cut. There were spots and things that needed to be corrected. He'd say, no, 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 I'm going to make the lion, but this can't be here. It would be cut out. It would be corrected. It would be a pointed destruction of some little part of it, and yet somehow the entire thing reeked of was a display of gentleness. 
He did not go in there and say, somebody told me there's a sculpture. There's some ice that doesn't need to be here. We got to get a lion out of this. He didn't just come wielding the chainsaw like this, just throwing it everywhere. He was not a surgeon who said, someone said there's cancer in here and it's got to be gone, so he just starts cutting wherever he can. The more cuts, the better. This cancer's got to know it's got to be gone. No, you can use power to correct something that's very dangerous and difficult, but Scripture says Christians must never do this in a spirit of haphazard, unhealthy, power-tripping, I'm in charge of you and going to tell you what needs to change kind of spirit. We correct others with gentleness. There are some sins, some patterns, some unhealth that need to be cut out as with a chainsaw. And the Spirit of God says to us, well, find you a mustachioed ice man, someone who could handle this, but he better know how to deftly wield the correction. It is a pattern of correction marked by gentleness. We do not berate fellow Christians. We do not dominate and abuse fellow Christians. We do not sarcastically expose fellow Christians. We correct with gentleness. This same thing is required in 2 Timothy. Paul writing to Timothy about what a minister of the gospel should be like. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, not only with correcting those inside the church, but those outside as well. He says in 24 or 25 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We correct, in other words, we wield power. There are certain things that just don't go. Gentleness does not mean that we forsake all holiness for a kind of faux unity. That's not gentleness. Well, we're a very gentle church. You can do whatever you want here. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Now, sometimes you take an ice chainsaw, but you still do it to carefully carve, to work with the Spirit of God to realize there's a, something being created. All right, so first category, correcting the wayward. Second, and we'll go quicker now. I just, the ice thing captured my imagination, so we'll go quicker now. We're supposed to have gentleness when reasoning with unbelievers, Gentleness when reasoning with unbelievers. That means we don't immediately adopt the spirit of the talking head when we want to get into an apologetics conversation. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 3, 15 16 says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. It is the pattern of Christians to reason with unbelievers gently. We do not win when we are louder. The goal in reasoning with unbelievers is not to get a no, he didn't from the crowd. We do not seek to exchange pithy, sarcastic, hot takes. No Christian is ever allowed to, in a spirit of reasoning with unbelievers, 
try to join the contest of greatest and hottest of takes. Instead, we are to reason, but to do so with gentleness. This cannot be ignored. It's not an optional kind of standard. I've heard so many people discount the idea of gentleness because they love the points that the person is making. I remember asking someone some time, well, uh, that video, I mean, sure, it had a lot of truth, and the guy's just a total jerk, though. They're like, I know, he's a little bit, I mean, he's a little bit tough, but did you see what he said? And I just want to be like, yeah, I, I would love him to say it differently, and I think Scripture would love him to say it differently as well, because gentleness is a pattern for those who have the Spirit of Jesus. Third, we have correcting the wayward, then reasoning with unbelievers. Third, we're supposed to be gentle in nurturing new believers. And I've seen this so often in the church. Churches get very comfortable doing mature Christian things for mature Christians. And sometimes the thing they hate the most is an immature believer in their midst. Someone who just doesn't get it. They want to talk about the deepest realms of Reformed theology and the person just says, can you tell me again where's Galatians in my Bible? And they don't know what to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul describing his ministry amongst the church there, he says that they were gentle among them. These were new Christians coming from a background of Judaism or a background of Gentile worship or pagan worship. Wherever they were coming from, he realized that they needed to be gentle. He said to them that they were among them, gentle among them, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I love the spirit of Paul here. Not one ounce of him is worried about seeing, seeming sissy or like a pansy. Now, I, I think that men should be men in the world. I think God made them men, so they should be men. But there's absolutely nothing unmanly about gentleness. Paul says, here was my ministry among you, like a nursing mother. That's how gentle I was in your midst. Because you were new Christians. You were dealing with doubts and questions and difficulties entangled in sins, and I needed to be gentle among you. Finally, and we're not going to look at any one scripture passage, first Timothy amongst others. How often are we encouraged in scripture not only to correct with gentleness and reason with gentleness and nurture new believers with gentleness, but simply to be gentle in our way of life? 1 Timothy, for instance, always tells us we ought to endeavor to live quiet lives, living dignified, quiet, gentle lives. Our presence in the world, if it's to be the presence of Jesus, is not to go around as a self-appointed table-turner-overer. Even though I know Jesus turned over tables once or twice. Gentleness marked his spirit. Jesus had full knowledge of his power, he had full understanding of what he was attempting to accomplish, and he understood the relationship between the two. When power meets weakness, what marks the exchange? And it's the spirit of Jesus that brings gentleness. When holiness meets unholiness in correcting the wayward, what marks the exchange? So the pattern is gentleness. When reasoned, light of the world illumined hearts and spirits. When the veil's been torn off and it meets someone you're reasoning with who still has a veil of sin over their eyes, what marks the exchange? When a mature believer who understands that meat offered to idols is nothing interacts with an immature believer who is more weak in their faith, what marks the exchange? When a Christian who understands that they are a citizen, first of all, 
in heaven, meets someone who is wrapped up in citizenship maybe only here, what marks the exchange? And scripture tells us over and over and over again, gentleness is the pattern. Gentleness is the pattern. Of all the things that marks good Christianity, those who have a voice or have influence in our churches, my prayer, my thought would be that gentleness ought to tick up the list. There has been a long history, and I believe in many times a tragic history, of Christians too often turning a blind eye to gentleness marking these exchanges and simply valuing the person who scores the most points or gets the most done. But gentleness is a non-negotiable. It's the pattern of the way of life. Second, I said that first it was going to be a pattern and second it was going to be shown as power. Now here's the ironic thing. If given eyes to see, if we have faith, the Bible actually says the gentleness, by using our power correctly, actually enhances our power. This is the testimony of the Bible. It was the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, that said this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you believe that? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a promise and a testimony about the reality of the world. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. This has been a hard thing to imagine and to see because our world is so often marked by who can take the most. I went on a trip with the kids last week. We're going to museums. We're going to, it's always aquariums actually. Aquariums for some reason are always the the loudest, the busiest, the smelliest. I don't have anything against aquariums. But anyway, it was in those moments where I felt even the need. Like, I wanted to get up there and see the penguins. And every single moment when I tried to get a good spot for the penguins, there's some grandmother just shoving her way right in front of me. She has way more decades of experience of elbowing than I do. And she's somehow maneuvering always around me, and I felt this moment where I just thought, like, I need to inherit a good spot. I got to elbow a woman right now. I got to show her that I'm here. Now, I refrained and just waited longer than I thought that I need to, but it's that kind of thing. In one small experience in the aquarium, the people begin to learn, and they say, like, no, it's not the meek that inherit the earth. It's the early worm, the early worm, the early bird. It's the aggressive dog. It's those who speak up. It's those who take what's theirs. You see, the psalmist had a problem believing this as well. Psalm 73, he says, I despaired. I saw the kind of people who were prospering in the world. It was the proud, it was the loud, it was the brash, it was the violent. I saw who was prospering. And then he has a kind of awakening. He says, and then I saw their end. I think that awakening in Psalm 73 is similar to the prodigal son in Luke 15. There's an awakening about the reality of life. He thought life was one way in that psalm. He thought that it was all of the haughty and the proud and the violent that were going to win in the end. And then he's given an awakening, a spiritual awakening. I think a dose of faith to say, then I saw their end and I knew that their feet would slip. And that ultimately they would lose. 
and it is those who have remained patient and faithful who inherit the earth. We need that kind of faith, that kind of awakening to believe that gentleness and meekness are a path to power. Jesus says, here's how you inherit and gain, you give. Here's how you become first, you go last. Here's how you gain more power in the world, you hold it back when necessary. The Proverbs are full of this, it's not just Jesus. I love reading through Proverbs and thinking on these things for a little while. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In other words, Proverbs is saying, here's the wisdom of the world. Gentleness is way better than harshness. Have you learned that lesson yet? Gentleness is better than harshness. It's more effective. It wins. Proverbs 15, verse 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Contrast there is between different kinds of gentle tongues, but the truth remains. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. It multiplies and produces fruit. And one of my favorites, Proverbs 25, verse 15. With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. What a statement. A soft tongue will break a bone. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus saying, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Gentleness is not weakness. It is power. That is what Scripture says. Gentleness is power. Someone who is constantly striving and scrambling to show how powerful they are in the world is really displaying the cracks in the faith of their failing, of their coming weakness and fall. It is gentleness alone that has taken a proper, long view of what true power in the world really is. So, do you want to be more effective, to have more influence? Do we want the church to gain its rightful standing? Do you want to have a voice? Do you want to have a place? Do you need a seat at the table? then may you have an awakening like the psalmist, like the prodigal, to believe the words of Jesus, that we have more power when we've mastered and committed to gentleness. We are not first church of the berating tongue. We are not first church of the owning the pagans, uh, that was a bad church name, but you get what I'm saying. This is not the goal. We gain power in so much as we are like Jesus, and it turns out that Jesus is gentle. So we should be gentle. Well, I promised you three P words. I said gentleness is commended to us in Scripture as a pattern of life in a lot of different things. I told you that gentleness is actually power. It's not weakness, which is surprising. It turns the world on its head. Finally, and here's the most amazing and perhaps could appeal to you, those who, of you who really want to see the world change. It turns out, and I believe this firmly, that gentleness is a path. 
What I mean is that gentleness is the kind of thing that lays down a flat, straight, easy path for people to walk to Jesus. We go back to Matthew chapter 11. The most astounding thing here is Jesus is calling people to himself. He's just described the power that he has. You notice the contrast there in the verses? He says, all things have been handed over to me by the, fa- by the Father in verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. In other words, he's still powerful. He says that before he says that he's gentle. But his instinct, his goal here, he says in verse 28, come to me. How will people come to Jesus? When will we ever give up self-righteousness? How will we ever stop trying to commandeer our own lives? How will we ever commit to the control of another? And it seems as though Jesus is convinced that it will be the sweetness, the wooing of his gentle spirit that will draw people to himself. What makes people repent of sins? What makes people cry out for help? What causes someone to run to Jesus in the moment of their deepest need? Well, it seems like Jesus is convinced that one of the things that will beckon, one of the things that will call is gentleness. Gentleness is a path to Jesus. This is Jesus calling people to come, telling them to walk toward him. Come to me. Quit striving. Come to me. You're exhausted. Come to me. You're working so hard at righteousness. And the bait that he uses is gentleness. I want to say that again. The bait he uses is gentleness. How do we convince people that the path to Jesus is the only path to life? Might I suggest that we try building with the stones of gentleness. We make a straight path by meekness, by entreating, by kindness, by listening, by loving, by patiently enduring, by not insisting on our rights, by not yelling over the other, and that there is something about the patient kindness of God that is irresistible to a wearied sad, striving soul. Gentleness, it turns out, is a path to Jesus. Scripture says itself, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. That Second Timothy passage said that we should have gentleness with all of our opponents because it might very well be that through gentleness they are allowed to come to repentance. Winsome wins some. And the testimony of the Bible is that gentleness, being gentle, is winsome. It allows the person to believe just for a moment that someone might deal with them kindly. It allows someone to believe that if they gave up control, that they would be led well. It allows someone to believe that if they just confessed the darkest parts of their life, that they might find light. It allows someone to believe that if they gave up trying so hard that they might receive the righteousness of another. It allows someone to believe that they're known. It allows someone to believe that they might be able to be loved. When Jesus wants to catch fish, he baits them with gentleness. 
And I hope that we believe the same. There's an old saying in church world that what you win with, you win too. What you win someone with, you will win them too. You win them with a big show, with an entertainment complex, well, then you'll win them to an entertainment complex and you better keep up the entertainment complex or they'll get real bored and leave. If you win them with hot takes and being slightly angry and righteous, well, you're going to turn them into hot takey, slightly angry and righteous people. But if we win them with gentleness, then we win them to Jesus who says and declares, I am gentle. We must win people with the kind of bait that Jesus uses. We must win people to a Jesus that they can love and serve the real Jesus, not one that we've manufactured. And so I would encourage us, if we want to be faithful to the Bible, to live in a pattern, then we must employ gentleness. I encourage us, if we want influence, if we want power, we have to believe, have faith to believe that gentleness is power. And then finally, if you long to see people come to know Jesus, let's beg the Spirit of God for more and more gentleness in our lives. No one has ever said, you know what really endeared me to that person? Their harshness. Just their harshness. But my guess is, is that those of us who have the spirit of Jesus, who interact with others, especially sinners, with gentleness, that they may be intrigued. They may wonder why it is that we have such a store of mercy and grace for others. And eventually they'll have a path to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for scripture. I pray that we would have the courage, the ability, uh, the understanding the, to, able, to be able to put it into practice. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to be disengaged or apathetic. We want to be gentle. So I ask you, Father, would you be a good father to us now, your children? Would you give the good gift of your spirit this kind of spirit that takes from Jesus and gives to us. And this morning we're asking specifically, take of Jesus his gentleness and give that to us. We pray it in his name. Amen.